Good morning. Well, friends, let me tell you something that I often say to my own congregation. If you're anxious or tired or even discouraged after a long week, then there's no better place to be than with the community of God's blood-bought people sitting under the preaching of his word. Amen? As we hear his word, we are convicted, warned, exhorted, comforted, encouraged, and even empowered to glorify our Savior in this world. This is why listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning is no ordinary task. It's a battle for joy. It's a fight to lay hold of these words of eternal life so that our hearts and minds may be transformed to be faithful witnesses in this fallen world. But let's not forget, not even for a single moment, no matter how bad things might be, that this is our Father's world, just as we sang. So all this rain we've been having, it's not because of Mother Nature, that's because of Father God. If you have the slightest doubt about that, just go and read Job chapters 38 and 39 uh, when you get home. Friends, the Lord is king. That's what we've been singing about. The Lord is king. Our triune God is the sovereign king of all the earth, and he will complete his redeeming work in the lives of his people for the sake of his glory. So be encouraged this morning as we worship God together by listening to his word. So if you have a Bible, and I trust that you do, uh, please turn with me in your copy of God's word to Psalm 47. Psalm 47, we'll look at verses 1 to 9, the entirety of the psalm, and I will be reading from the ESV. Let's now ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now cause our hearts to be attentive to your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name and cause us to rejoice in the salvation that is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we pray for Pastor Joey and his family that you would be merciful to them and cause them to recover from their illness. We pray that as they struggle with the frailties of their bodies that they would be reminded of your great power and compassion. Lord, we ask that your spirit would now increase our hunger for you, that we would delight in your majesty and your greatness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 29 years ago, in 1994, that's right, 1994 was 29 years ago, Disney Pictures produced one of their greatest hits, uh, an animated musical drama called The Lion King. Raise your hand if you've seen that movie, The Lion King. Okay, that's most of you. Uh, So The the Lion King is a sort of coming of age story of a young lion who, who learns over time how to embrace his responsibility as king of the jungle. But at the beginning of the movie, we get to see how Simba, uh, this little lion, he has no idea of what kingship is all about. However, he is very excited that one day he will get to be king. And so he sings, oh, I just can't wait to be king. I'm going to be the main event like no king was before. I'm brushing up on looking down and working on my roar. No one's saying, do this, be there, stop that, see here. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. Now, that song, as entertaining as it may be, celebrates a childish notion of kingship. It celebrates irresponsibility and immaturity. Simba This young lion wants to be king for all the wrong reasons, for for power, freedom to be selfish and unaccountable, answerable to no one. And yet, I suppose that when some of us think of kingship, we may not be too far from those ideas. 
And I suppose that's because of the models of kingship or governments or authority uh, that we have been exposed to. When we look back in history or take a look uh, even at our present, when we survey kings and, and kingdoms, it's very evident that human kings are sinners. They are deeply flawed. Many living kings today are a profound disappointment to their subjects, which is why it would be a terrible, terrible mistake to look at an earthly model of kingship and then begin to imagine, ah, this is what God must be like when the Bible speaks of him as king. Friends, our fallen creaturely world is not competent to expound on the glorious themes of divine kingship and sovereignty. Even nations that call themselves sovereign at best mean that they are autonomous or somewhat autonomous. We mean that they govern themselves. They legislate their own laws, but all within their own borders. The sovereignty of an earthly king would be a very poor representation of what the Bible calls the sovereignty of God. It wouldn't even come close. You see, the sovereignty of God is the exercise of God's power over all his creation as king. It is his divine prerogative that arises out of his perfections. God alone, because of who he is, has the right to be absolutely sovereign. He is not dependent on anyone on any, or anything. This is the unchanging foundation of his dominion. This is what it means for God to be God. He is creator and he is king. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's Daniel 4.35. And therefore... If we are to gain any understanding of divine kingship, we must hear from the king himself. We must hear from God himself. Psalm 47 is a hymn about the kingship of the God of Israel. So if you look at the psalm, three times in this psalm, God is described as king. This psalm tells us what it means for God to be king, and it does so wonderfully in, in two stanzas that describe his majesty and his victories. Now, traditionally, this psalm has been classified as an enthronement psalm, a song that describes God as a victorious king who ascends his throne. We see that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. God is described as one who goes up, he ascends. This is language that is used in the coronation ceremony of an Israelite king. Now, it's very difficult to, to reconstruct the historical context of this psalm. We simply don't know. The psalm may have been used at an annual festival celebrating God's kingship, or more likely, it would have been sung as the Ark of the Covenant was carried up in procession all the way up to Mount Zion or Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the Lord himself. But irrespective of its historical setting, one thing is crystal clear. God's kingship or his reign demands a response from all people. Now, in Saudi Arabia, King Salman bin Abdulaziz al Saud reigns. Now, you're looking at me wondering, well, what does that matter? Well, exactly. It doesn't. His kingship has no bearing on your life or on mine, in the very least. He has no jurisdiction over us, but not so with God. Not so with God. As we approach this, this psalm, the first thing that should hit us squarely within the, between the eyes is that God's kingship is not a localized or private affair. The Lord certainly identifies himself with his people Israel, but his rule, his kingship is over all. He is not geographically limited. He's not bound by international law. What he says and does is law. And he is always good and he is always right. And therefore his kingship demands our acknowledgement. 
It demands a response to His sovereign rule. And so as we consider the psalm and meditate on God's kingship, I want you to know two things. Number one, God's kingship demands a response. God's kingship demands a response. And number two, God's kingship drives us to Jesus Christ. God's kingship drives us to Christ. In other words, it's most gloriously visible and displayed in the rule of Christ. But let's think about that first point. God's kingship demands a response. Look with me at verse 1 of the psalm. Verses 1 to 2. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Notice what the psalmist is calling people to do. Clap your hands. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. The the first thing we ought to note is that these acts are distinctive of Israelite worship. Uh, You see this all over the Bible, particularly in the Psalms. Under the Old Covenant, the people of Israel would gather for corporate worship a few times a year for their festivals, for the Passover, or, or the first fruits, and so on and so forth. These gatherings would always be associated with God's prescribed sacrifices for their sin. This is how they were to approach God in worship. The people would lift up their voices in triumphant song because God, their king, was in their midst. He was in in the tabernacle and then later on in history in the temple. And so this shouting was not some disharmonious and meaningless cacophony. No, this was meaningful. These loud songs of joy were corporate confessions of faith in the kingship of God. The one who had delivered his people from their oppressors in Egypt and from their oppressors from other nations. He is a great king over all the earth. But here's what I want you to see. Did you notice, look at the text, did you notice that the command to clap hands and shout with loud songs of joy is not directed to Israel. Did you see that? It's directed to peoples. The Gentiles are told to rejoice and worship God's sovereign rule. Now, why would a psalmist of Israel call the Gentiles, the peoples of all the nations, why would he call the Gentiles to do that? Well, verse 2 gives us the reason. Look at verse 2, for, that's the reason, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. The Gentiles are to worship God because the Lord is a fearsome and great king. You see, the, the songwriter assumes that these Gentiles know Yahweh. They know the Lord. They have heard of his deeds. God is the Lord. That's his covenant name. This is the God who enters into a special relationship with Israel, his people. He is the Most High. He is the Almighty One, the one who is supreme and holds sway over everything and everyone. There's no one above him or besides him. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he is to be feared. His name, his character, and his rule is one to be revered and not to be trifled with. I want you to look very carefully at that connection between verses 1 and 2 here. Notice that the Gentiles or peoples are told to rejoice and joyfully sing precisely because Yahweh is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. He is a great king. The one who graciously enters into covenant with sinners is to be feared. Friends, confessing and believing That this God is king ought to cause your heart to swell up with great joy. So that you would want to sing his praises with loud songs of joy. It ought to cause you to fear him as king but also rejoice in him as he is your king. The one who has graciously entered into a saving relationship with you. Friends, the fear of the Lord... And joyous singing, get this, the fear of the Lord and joyous singing go hand in hand according to this psalm. You must believe that. 
if you're a Christian. This is what pleasing worship to God looks like. Now, the fear of the Lord is what fuels our obedience. Believing that God is who He says He is, believing that He has graciously acted on behalf of His people, that holy reverence ought to fuel our obedience, and it begins with obedience to this command, to joyfully sing. Think about that. Think about this. What does your singing say about your heart towards God's kingship? Have you ever thought about that? Friends, a heart that is humbled before the Lord sings with great joy. Proud people do not sing. Self-sufficient people do not sing. But people who see themselves as miserable wretches deserving of the full and just wrath of God, but realize that He has graciously saved them, oh, they sing loudly, joyfully, and sometimes with tears of gratitude. So fathers, dads, let me ask you this. Do your children see you singing? You know, your singing says a great deal about your relationship with God. Beloved, we are commanded in Scripture to sing to the Lord and to sing to one another in corporate worship. You see that clearly in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. If you do not sing, remember, this is a command. If you do not sing, then you're sinning. You're failing to keep that commandment. Yeah, but I don't know the song. Well, then learn the song. You know, as you sing to God and to one another, you are doing what the Lord has called you to do in joyful faith. And if you see a brother or sister not singing, you know, the most loving thing you can go and do is talk to them after the service and ask them what's going on in their hearts. What's going on in their lives that's quenching their desire to worship the Lord through song? What's stifling that? What's quenching that? Love your brothers and sisters. Keep watch over them and serve them in that way. Did you know that part of disciple making is is teaching other believers to sing? Jesus tells us in the Great Commission that part of what it means to make disciples is is to teach one another to obey everything that he has commanded, and one of those commands is to sing. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19. And so a church that doesn't sing is not a disciple-making church. Brothers and sisters, do you delight enough in God's kingship over your life to sing about it? Do you delight enough in God's kingship over your life that you're deeply and profoundly concerned when your brothers and sisters are not thriving under his good rule. You know, a congregation that sings and encourages one another in song is a powerful and compelling witness to the grace and goodness of God in a lost and hurting world. So sing. The kingship of God is not, a, is not a doctrine that is to be merely intellectually contended with. You have to wrestle with it, no doubt, but mental assent and recognition of it is not enough. This is an immensely practical doctrine. It should remind us of our creatureliness. God is king and we are not. That should humble us and comfort us if rightly understood. All doctrine should lead to doxology, to praise. You know, that title, Great King, specifically evokes the covenant treaty context of Israel's faith. Yahweh was the great king, the great suzerain lord. 
in relation to all his beneficiaries or vassals, meaning lesser kings. So Israel and the peoples who had in turn become Israel's vassals were all Yahweh's vassals. Lesser kings were dependent on greater kings or suzerain for their protection and well-being when such treaties were entered into and made. The use of this phrase, great king in the hymn, would have reminded those singers of their identity before the Lord and who the Lord was to them and what He was doing for them. Beloved, to acknowledge God's kingship is to rejoice in that care. It is to submit to the king's decrees, to submit to his word. You know, there's no point saying, I just want the Lord's will to be done. Take my life and let it be. I surrender all. There's no point in saying all of that if you're neglecting the clear teaching of the king's word. That's not submission to his kingship. That is high treason. You are you are a traitor to the crown. You're just like Judas, who loves public displays of affection. Remember Judas kissing Jesus in public? But in reality, was only concerned with doing what he wanted to do. Let's not be like that. Someone who does that is a person who despises and doesn't delight in the kingship of God. But what has this king done that demands such a response? What has he done to provoke and generate joyful praise among the peoples? Well, look at verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. God subdued Gentiles under Israel. Nations under Israel's feet. This is a picture of military victory. Now, isn't that curious? Just think about it. God subdued these Gentile nations under Israel, and the psalmist tells them, the Gentiles, the subdued ones, to clap and shout to God with loud songs of joy. God is to be praised. He is to be feared because He has established His rule over them through His people. Through Israel's conquests, the Lord has brought them under His sovereign rule, and this is reason to praise Him, He says. In other words, the kingship of the Lord is established through His acts of deliverance for Israel. I'll say that again. The kingship of the Lord is established through His acts of deliverance for Israel. Not only that, but the Lord's defeat of these nations meant, at least in the minds of those nations, the defeat of their gods as well. You know, the Lord was the great king. He is to be feared, not Baal or Molech or any other ancient Near Eastern deity. He is the deliverer and protector of his people because that is his covenant character through which he expresses his kingship. Look at verse 4. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. That term Selah is a a musical term reflecting uh, either a a pause or a sudden rising of voices. Remember, this is a song. And the songwriter says he chose. Yahweh chooses. He chose Israel's heritage. He chose their allotment because he set his love on their forefather, Jacob. And the text calls this heritage the pride of Jacob. This is a reference to Israel's inheritance, the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. Not only did God choose their inheritance, he chose them because he decided to set his love upon them. God chose Israel out of all the peoples for himself. He redeemed them out of slavery from Egypt, and he brought them to the promised land. Friends, a proper response to God's kingship is to remind ourselves of his redemption, of his sovereign grace. He does not owe anyone anything. We owe him everything. 
When Israel stood on the borders of the promised land, after their wilderness wanderings, Moses reminded them of this truth in Deuteronomy 9, 4-7. He said, remember, you are going to get this land, not because you are righteous, but because those nations are wicked and I am driving them out. You get the land as a gift. Remember. You see, a celebration of God's kingship required a call to remember that Israel was undeserving and unrighteous. It was not because of anything in Israel. It was not because of anything they had done that the Lord was giving them an inheritance. It was because of His love and His promises that flowed from His covenant character. You see, the Lord in His very nature is a gospeling kind of being. So if an Israelite boy sat down with his father at dinner time and asked him, Dad, why is it that we get to enjoy this land, this inheritance, instead of our neighbors? Why why did God throw them out? Are we better than, than them? His father would reply, Oh, son, we enjoy this land not because we deserve it or we're any better than them, In fact, we were disobedient and rebellious like the rest of these nations. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were undeserving, delivered us from our bondage from Egypt. And He gave us this land because of the word that He made to our forefathers. It is the gift of God. We have received the grace of the sovereign King of the universe. Therefore, fear Him my son. Friends, the kingship of God is displayed most glaringly and most gloriously in His sovereign grace. In His acts of election and deliverance, He has shown Himself to be king over all the earth, a victor who has redeemed His people and has ascended His rightful place, that is His throne. And that's what the next verse depicts. Look at next, the next verse, verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This poetic language probably refers to the, the, the triumphant procession of the ark following a military victory. The ark, uh, if you remember, was a symbol of God's presence in battle. And here it has gone up to Jerusalem, accompanied by the, the shouting and the trumpet blowing of the people who are rejoicing in the Lord's victory. God is king, and this psalm points to the way that he has proved his kingship by his defeat of the nations and the preservation of his people, Israel. The kingship of God is displayed most glaringly and most gloriously in his sovereign and gracious deliverance. Friends, no one understood this better. No one understood this better than the writers of this psalm. Did you notice who this was written by? Look at the psalm. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. Did you see that? Now that is an infamous heritage to have, if any. These men were descendants of Korah from the line of Kohath, who in turn is of the line of Levi, who comes from Levi. Now the Levites were called to be priests and their priestly duties were divided among four of Levi's descendants, Aaron, Kohath, Merari, and Gershon. But God gave the most exalted position to Aaron, passing over Kohath. Furthermore, Kohath and his family had to be supervised by Eliezer, a son of Aaron. And those from the family of Kohath and Korah Well, their job was to encircle the tent, the tabernacle, and to guard the entrance of the tabernacle. In other words, they were doorkeepers. They were doorkeepers. And as a result of that, Korah grew very discontent because he didn't like God's choice. He wanted the priesthood. He wanted to step into Aaron's shoes. And so he, he found a sympathizing ear with two men called Dathan and Abiram. It's 
It's always amazing how discontent people find each other. He found two men called Dathan and Abiram of the tribe of Reuben. They all decided that we don't want Moses and Aaron's leadership over us. And so Korah and these men led a rebellion of 250 men against Moses and Aaron. And how did God respond to this coup? Well, turn in your Bibles to Numbers 16. Just open it to Numbers chapter 16 and look with me at verses 23 and 24. I want you to see this. Numbers 16, 23 to 24. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Now skip down to verses 31 to 33. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. Literally, the earth gave way. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol into the grave, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. But that story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. When Moses orders the census of the new generation from 20 years and upward, and he thinks back, he recollects Korah's rebellion, we we see a shocking verse in Numbers 26 verse 11. So skip ahead to Numbers chapter 26 and look at Numbers 26 verse 11. What does it say? But the sons of Korah did not die. Wait, what? Now when you read Numbers 16, it looks like the whole household of Korah perished, right? They were judged for rebelling against the kingship of God. So why is Numbers 26, 11 here? It shouldn't be. Why were these people alive? Friends, don't you see what happened? God's grace took a family that was under a deserved sentence of death. And he spared some. Not only did he spare them. He gave them a place of honor in the covenant community. When you read 1 Chronicles chapter 6, you read that David put these descendants of Korah in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. You can read an entire list of all their beautiful names in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. In spite of their shameful family history, they are remembered not by the names of their immediate fathers, but as the sons who come from Korah. Why? Because this lineage stands as a testimony, not just to the justice of God, but to His sovereign grace and mercy. This is why, this is why, come back to the Psalms, look at Psalm 46. This is why the sons of Korah could sing Psalm 46, verses 1 to 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Did you hear that? Look down at verses 6 to 7 of Psalm 46. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When these sons of Korah would think about their service in God's house, they would write this. Look at Psalm 84. Psalm 84 verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Isn't that amazing? Knowing the Lord's saving work in your life 
makes you think and makes you sing differently, doesn't it? In fact, it makes you live differently. Reflecting on the sovereign grace of God in their lives gave the sons of Korah great joy and contentment in their service to God and to others. Beloved, your singing today is only meaningful if you walk in the obedience of faith later on in the week. If there's one thing that the sons of Korah knew very well, it was that God is king. A king of justice and a king of mercy. Oh, they had something to sing about, didn't they? He was not just a king. He was their king. And therefore, he is worthy to be praised. Friends, we are all in that sense, just like the sons of Korah, aren't we? We should receive justice. But instead, we have received God's sovereign grace in the gospel. He is our king. Look at the burst of praises that follows the description of the works of God. Look at verses 6 to 9. Verses 6 to 9 is the second stanza of this psalm with the continuation of the same sense of the first stanza leading up to its climax in verse 9. Look at verse 6. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. Why do we sing praises to God, our King? Verse 7. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. He's not just a great King. He is the King of all the earth. That word that is translated as psalm in verse 7. Sing praises with a psalm. That word there is maskil. It, it carries with it an idea that this is a song that is profoundly instructive. You can learn something from it. In other words, we ought to sing with understanding. Beloved, think deeply about the kingship of God when you sing. Reflect on what He has done. Let me ask you this. Do you reflect on the words of the song when you sing together? Perhaps some of you, as you sing, should mourn over sin as you're confronted with truths in that song about who God is. Perhaps some of you, as you sing, should repent. If you're giving over your minds and bodies to immorality, then you should remember that God is king. Christ owns you. He has bought you with a price. You are not your own. God is not an isolated tribal deity. No, He reigns over all the nations. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His what throne? Holy throne. Holy throne. The Lord's reign and rule over the nations is a holy one. To be subject to this king is to be holy as He is holy. This is what he says to his redeemed people. Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the question remains, how? How does he do it? How does God bring all these Gentile nations who do not know Him under His holy and covenantal kingly rule so that they're actually happy about it and they're delighting in it? This is the dilemma of verse 1 and verse 3 and verse 4. These people have been conquered and subdued and have been given as an inheritance in order to fear and praise and worship the God of Israel. How does that happen? And the answer is given to us in verse 9. Look at verse 9. And that brings us to our second point. God's kingship drives us to Jesus. Look at verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. You see, the princes or the representatives of all the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. 
Friends, something wonderful has happened. These Gentiles now gather. They now assemble as God's covenant people. They now have a relationship with him. And the only reason this happens is that God has sovereign authority over them. You see, when the writer uses the word shields, look at the word shields there in the text. He does not mean a literal shield. But this word corresponds to the phrase, the princes in the previous line. Remember, this is a song. There's some parallelism going on here in these lyrics. The psalmist is saying that these princes were not the ultimate protection or refuge for their people. No, God is. Why? Because he owns them. They belong to him. God owns your president. That's just not my opinion. That's just a fact. God owns your president. He owns your vice president, and she better not laugh at that. The governor of this state belongs to him by virtue of his divine kingship. He rules. He's king. That kind of power and authority and dominion is able to take Gentiles who are alienated from the promises and covenants and make them his people. And graft them into God's people so that there will be one king and one people. And the end of all of this is God's exaltation, his glory. This this is why the peoples praise the Lord. But friends, this is a grand vision which has eschatological dimensions. It looks forward to the end, beyond the time when this psalm was written. You see, this points to an assembly of the nations, Jews and Gentiles, worshiping God as universal king. Friends, this was what was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verses 8 to 9, that the scripture, thinking about this verse, Genesis 12, 3, Paul writes the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How does God accomplish this? Well, he accomplishes it through Jesus Christ. Through the offspring of Abraham, the promised Messiah, the coming king that all the prophets looked forward to. This is how we come to embrace and delight in God's kingship through Jesus. This was Paul's goal to proclaim what he called was a mystery that was unknown to the previous generations. He writes in Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, it is through the saving death of Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the greater king of Israel, it is through his death on the cross that God's grace is given as a free gift to all the peoples. You know, the great dilemma, the great conundrum of the Old Testament was how could a holy God forgive sinners? How can he do that without compromising his justice? And the answer is given to us in the death of Christ on the cross, where Jesus bears the sins of all his people, Jew and Gentile, and he imputes his righteousness to them when they repent and believe. You see, Israel's place in redemptive history was to be a light to the nations, that through them the Gentiles would come to know the God of salvation. But Israel failed again and again to live well under God's rule. And they showed themselves to despise his rule over them. Until Jesus did what Israel could not do. Until God's only begotten son did what God's national son, Israel, could not do. Through his life of perfect obedience and through his substitutionary death, Jesus draws all peoples to himself. You see, Psalm 47 would have made no sense to the writers if submission to the Lord did not also involve a trust in his promises, especially the one made to Abraham. 
That is why it says in the psalm that they gather as people of the God of Abraham. But for us, we have come to know how Christ has fulfilled those promises, haven't we? Psalm 47 makes no sense without the person and work of Jesus Christ. Brothers, the sovereign grace of God ultimately comes to us in the sinless Son of God who went to the cross and died in our place so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. This is how God judges sin and simultaneously shows us mercy. God buried His Son in the earth so that we could be rescued from the tents of wickedness and brought into the household of God. And then God raised His Son on the third day so that we could receive new hearts that love Him and sing with joy. It is through Christ we who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of His cross. This is the good news for all the peoples, for all the nations. This is what Jesus did for people of every nation. And as a result of that, God the Father did something. He did something. Paul tells us in Philippians, in his letter to the Philippians chapter 2, that because of what Jesus accomplished by His obedient sacrifice, by His death and resurrection for the salvation of His people, He now reigns as Savior and King over His church. He has inaugurated the new covenant in His blood. The kingdom of God is already here. Because of what He has accomplished, Philippians 2, 9-11 says this, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has gone up with a shout. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we will ever sing. See, Jesus has won the victory over Satan and sin and death He's done this for us and He has inaugurated His saving rule over His people. Jesus Christ is Lord of all and He reigns with all authority and He calls us to respond to His authority. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And friends, He is coming back and He will judge those, all those who have rejected His kingship. Friend, if you don't know Him, bow the knee to Him while you still have time. If you are here as one who is not a Christian, well, let me tell you we are so glad that you are here. But let me also tell you that there is no king like this king. He is a good king. He is a loving king. He made you. He owns you. And yet you have sinned against him. Remember that he is holy. He sits on his holy throne and he will judge every sin and every sinner personally. So cast yourself on His mercy. Turn from your sin. Turn from your desire for autonomy and submit yourself to Him. Repent of your sins and trust in His saving work for sinners. He is a King who will abundantly pardon. Oh, He is a gracious and compassionate King. He will abundantly pardon those who confess their sins and their helplessness. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize Christ's kingship over your life? God put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church. To the church. The church is meant to be a display of his glory to the watching world. And that means that we are to live for our king. So let me ask you this Do you fight your sin? living in the victory that your king has accomplished for you? When you open this book and read the words of your king, when you consider his commands in light of what he has done for you, do they make you feel joyful? Or do they feel oppressive and, and burdensome? How is your heart towards your king? Does your marriage look like you're living for your king? What would your king say about the way you treat your wife or your husband? What would your king say about your current schedule 
would he be pleased with it? Friends, if Christ is the great king over all the earth, and if his word is true and he's bringing all things to a glorious end where every knee will bow to him, then you need to be more concerned with eternal realities than your temporal problems. That means you need to be more concerned about your greed and your lust than about the size of your home or car. You need to be more concerned about your anger than about the fact that you haven't been given a promotion. You need to be more concerned about your lack of love than about a lack of stuff. You need to be more concerned about teaching the word to your children than pursuing a career. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. We have problems. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over your problems. He ordained your problems. He is your king. He has perfect control over your lives, over your problems. He knows what he's doing. Trust in him and walk in the obedience of faith. If you're single, unmarried, what would your king say about the way you're living your single life? What would he say about the way you love and care for the people, these people, whom he has purchased with his own blood? The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that wherever the rule of Christ is acknowledged and delighted in, there is Christ's kingdom and there Christ is king. The kingdom of God already present but not fully realized is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world towards the eventual redemption of all creation and the joyous praises of all the nations around his throne. Friends, a day is coming when King Jesus will return and the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. What do we do till then? What do we do till then? We sing joyfully. We pray constantly. We give cheerfully and sacrificially. We teach patiently. We evangelize zealously. And we preach the message of the King with great urgency. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you are a great King who is worthy of all our worship. We praise you for Jesus that we get to enjoy salvation, rest in him. Lord, we pray that we would know him better and better and that we would serve you more faithfully. May the joy of knowing him seize our hearts. May the joy of knowing him shape our schedules. And may the joy of knowing him consume all of our days. In his name we pray. Amen.